Well, if you look closely at the bulletin, you, you would have noticed that today we were having two sermons on the Heidelberg Catechism, and that requires a little explanation. We have the Lord's Supper next Sunday morning, and the three Lord's Days, the next three Lord's Days that we're at, all deal with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Tonight we're going to look at the preparatory part of that at the end of Lord's Day 30, question and answers 81 and 82. Next Sunday morning... I think that Lord's Day 28 is especially appropriate because it talks about spiritually partaking. And so this morning we're going to look at Lord's Day 29 and then the first question and answer of 30, which deal with the Lord's Supper in contrast to the Roman Catholic Mass. Now, I want to acknowledge something before we start this morning, and that is that that might feel like a bit of catechism overload. And... I said to the elders before the service in the consistory room that when you get to the sacraments in the catechism, sometimes it feels like a long-distance marathon because there's so much material here Sunday after Sunday in the sacraments. And this morning, what I want to help us to do is to see that the biblical understanding of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper has to do with the doctrine of grace. And that's really why this received so much emphasis at the time of the Reformation. What we want to do this morning then is look at 78 through 80 on page 17. 78 through 80 on page 17. I'll read those and then we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Question 78, do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? Not at all. But as the water in baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ, neither is the washing away of sin itself, being only the sign and confirmation thereof appointed of God. So the bread in the Lord's Supper is not changed into the very body of Christ, though agreeably to the nature and properties of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ Jesus. 79. Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood, and Paul the communion of the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks thus not without great reason, namely, not only thereby to teach us that as bread and wine support the temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink whereby our souls are fed to eternal life, but more especially by these visible signs and pledges to assure us that we are as really partakers of his true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Ghost as we receive by the mouth of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of him and that all his sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own person suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God." And then question 80, what difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we by the Holy Ghost are engrafted into Christ who according to his human nature is now not on earth but in heaven at the right hand of God his Father and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the suffering of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. And further, 
that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine, and therefore is to be worshipped in them, so that the Mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Let's turn in God's Word now to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews, the seventh chapter. Uh, This chapter deals with the priesthood of Melchizedek and contrasts that to the priesthood of the Levites. And it culminates really in verse 25 that Christ as the priest after the order of Melchizedek is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. So let's read Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, which is the meaning of the name Melchizedek, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth part of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them, that is, not from the seed of Abraham, received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better or the more superior. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of whom no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning priesthood, and it is yet far more evident for that after the similitude of Melchizedek there ariseth another priest, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment, but after the power of an endless life. For he testifieth, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. 
And inasmuch as not without an oath he was made priest, for those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. And they truly were priests, were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. This man, of course, is Christ. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once, when he offered up himself. For the law maketh high priests, maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. We read that far in the holy and inspired word of Jesus Christ, the word of God. <clears throat> what do you say of the cross of Jesus Christ and its power? That's really the question that we look at this morning. Is the cross of Jesus Christ sufficient in what he did there to make payment for all our sins, to secure our salvation? Has Jesus Christ himself in his death and resurrection done all that's necessary for your and my salvation? That's the question as we come to the difference between the Roman Catholic Mass and the biblical celebration of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And this morning, I want to set positively before you the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ, as we've looked at that here, and we'll see that here in Hebrews chapter 7, and then over against that, see that the Roman Catholic Church in the Mass denies what the Scriptures say about the work of Jesus Christ, and then see that the Lord's Supper is a celebration of that work. So let's consider this morning remembering the finished work of Christ. First, the fact of his finished work, and then a denial of his finished work in the Mass, and then third, the celebration of his finished work in the Lord's Supper. What do we mean that the work of Jesus Christ is finished? We could use other words, it's accomplished, it is complete. We mean this, that everything that is necessary to secure our salvation was done by Jesus Christ himself during his earthly ministry, which included his being born, his work during his ministry, his suffering all his life long, his death by crucifixion, his resurrection, and then his ascension into heaven. In the saving work of Jesus Christ, in who he was and what he did, all that is necessary for our salvation 
has been accomplished. He secures and he completes our salvation. And so when we talk about the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are talking about the power of the cross of Jesus Christ, which stands at the center of his saving work. It is of infinite value. That is, it cannot be measured in its greatness. What Christ accomplished is of infinite value. A grace, a power, a salvation that is greater than all my sin. And that means not only that we do not and cannot, but that we do not need to add anything to the work of Jesus Christ. Salvation that is not a joint accomplishment. Salvation is not something that we do cooperatively and accomplish together with Jesus Christ. Salvation is not something to which we add by our good works. Salvation is not something that we earn in even the smallest way, but it's accomplished by Jesus Christ. Finished in what He came and did as He lived and died and rose again and ascended into heaven. That's the great truth of the book of Hebrews, and that's the great truth of Hebrews chapter 7 that we read together, that Christ has accomplished, finished, completed our salvation. We don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but we do know to whom it was written and why it was written. It was written to believing Jews, that is, Jews who had heard the New Testament gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and who understood him as the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures and believed in him, put their trust in him for their salvation. So it's written to believing Jews. But like most of the Jewish Christians, there were two things that was especially difficult for them to let go of. One was their traditions, the Old Testament ceremonies and practices. And the other was their ethnicity, that they were Jews and that others could be saved without becoming Jews, without being proselytized into the Jewish nation and religion. And we, of course, can understand both of those things. It's very difficult to let go of traditions. And there is a certain ethnicity or national pride that we can have. And both of those things aren't a part of salvation. Traditions and ethnicity. And so as the New Testament church was beginning and these Jews had trouble letting go of those two things, there arose in the early New Testament church among the believing Jews a a looking for what we could call a restoration, a restoration of the Jewish practices and a return. And you've heard of Judaizers, and this is what the Judaizers especially were bringing into the New Testament church. They were not, we we could say, continuing in unbelief as Jews in the Jewish practice of their religion, but they were Jews who said, we believe in Jesus Christ, but we need to bring these Jewish traditions back into the New Testament church or hold on to them. So they expected all the Christians and Gentiles as well to take up these Jewish practices of the Old Testament 
and that this would be practiced as a part of Christianity. And the book of Hebrews is written to tell the New Testament church, no, no. We shouldn't go back to what is called elsewhere in the New Testament, those beggarly elements. Those things that are prescribed in the Old Testament for children as types and pictures. But believing in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ having come, we mature and we embrace Jesus Christ himself as the fulfillment of all the Old Testament types and pictures. Now there was an added reason that this was appealing in the New Testament church, and that's part of what's addressed here in the book of Hebrews as well, and it's this, that the Jewish unbelievers were persecuting the Jewish Christians. And so the Jewish Christians were tempted to say, well, there's not really that much difference between us and you. We still practice the Old Testament uh, ceremonies and laws. We still circumcise our boys and so on. We still keep the feast days. And that was to soften the blows of persecution. The book of Hebrews says no to these, unbelieving, to, to these Jewish Christians about going back to those things in this way by setting before them that Jesus Christ's salvation and saving work is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament types that they are no longer necessary and that we must look to and come to Jesus Christ in faith. There's one word in the book of Hebrews that brings this home more than anything else, and it's the word better. It appears 13 times in the book, and there are 13 chapters in Hebrews, 13 times the word better is used. And it, it's used first in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4, with these added words, so much better, so much better, being made so much better than the angels. And in chapter 1, it's telling us that Christ was more than just a spiritual being, an angel that came from heaven. He was the Son of God Himself who came into our flesh and was made in the likeness of man. And it lays that groundwork to tell us what kind of Savior and high priest He was. So much better. Now, perhaps the English word that's most suitable is the word superior. Superior. And there's this comparison and contrast between Christ and the Old Testament practices, especially the priests and the sacrifices. And Christ is presented in Hebrews all the way from chapter 2 through chapter 10 as superior to the Old Testament priests and superior to the Old Testament sacrifices. The focus of chapter 7 is that Christ is a superior priest. And it does that by, it shows us that Christ is a superior priest by telling us that he is not a priest of the line of Aaron and the Levites, but that he, from the tribe of Judah, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And in telling us that Christ is not a priest like the Levites, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek like Melchizedek, Hebrews chapter 7 very powerfully sets before us 
the superiority of Christ and the finished work of Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. Who is Melchizedek? Well, he's introduced to us in the first verses of chapter 7 with the language of the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. He was, Melchizedek was, the priest of the Most High God. He met Abraham as Abraham was returning from war. He blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave tithes to him. And that's almost everything that we know about Melchizedek. He was king of Salem and priest of the Most High God, who blessed Abraham and who received tithes from Abraham. Apart from that, Melchizedek is a very obscure Old Testament personality or figure. But there are some things in Melchizedek who appears just momentarily in the Old Testament narrative that set him apart as one of the most magnificent types or pictures of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament Scriptures. We, of course, understand the importance of priesthood in the Old Testament. The priests in the Old Testament, the Levitical priests now, brought sacrifices daily, and they set before the people the necessity of the shedding of blood for the cleansing of sin. And they did that, especially in this way, that they did these sacrifices repeatedly so that in the Old Testament uh, ceremonies, there was a continual shedding of blood. And that continual flow of blood told the people, there's a great sacrifice that's needed, a great shedding of blood that's needed for the forgiveness of your sins. And as Hebrews tells us elsewhere, the blood of bulls and goats never removed sin. So the priesthood was important. But Melchizedek as a priest, and that's the point here in chapter 7, was superior to the priests who were of the line and the family of Aaron. And Melchizedek as a priest was superior in at least four different ways that are pointed to in this chapter. And then there's a fifth way that Jesus Christ, beyond Melchizedek, is superior to the Old Testament priests. First of all, in verse 3, we see that Melchizedek was a priest who had eternal origins. Eternal origins. Notice what it says there in verse 3. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, a priest that abides continually. Now, this, of course, can't mean that Melchizedek never had parents, that Melchizedek never died. But it means this, that the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament narrative deliberately hides those facts from us. So that Melchizedek appears suddenly on the scene as a person who, it seems, has no beginning. Where does he come from? He's not from Israel. He's not of the seed of Abraham. We don't know his lineage. And what happens beyond him? We don't know. He just suddenly appears, and and that's to tell us, with the hiding of those facts, that Christ, Christ would be without beginning and end of days, and without descent 
and that he would be a priest that would abide continually. And that's in contrast to the Levitical priests who were of the tribe of Levi, who came and went, and who on account of that could never make a sacrifice that would last. The priesthood was not eternal. And so we learn about Jesus Christ in his coming in Bethlehem, don't we? That he was the ancient of days, God conceived in the womb of Mary, and that he arose again from the dead and he ascended into heaven and he lives still there as our high priest. So that's the first thing in Melchizedek that we see. The second thing, and this is a very important thing, is that Melchizedek was a priest with kingly rights, a priest with kingly rights. He's called the priest of the Most High God and the King of Salem. And his name, Melchizedek, also means that he's a king. King of righteousness. And Hebrews chapter 7, and the Old Testament as well, show the kingly rights of Melchizedek in this, that when Abraham came from battle, Abraham gave a tenth of the spoil to to Melchizedek, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Those two things are there in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. That's the main event that's recorded concerning Melchizedek in the Old Testament. And the point that's made here in Hebrews chapter 7 is that the greater blesses the lesser. So Abraham the father of all of Israel, Abraham, who Hebrews 7 tells us, received the promises that in him all nations of the earth would be blessed, that from his seed one would come who would be the blessing to all nations. Abraham receives blessing from Melchizedek. And this must have been a shocking thought to the Jewish mind. Abraham is our father, and there is one greater than Abraham? Yes, there is, and it's Melchizedek. You remember that they asked Jesus, the Jews did, Art thou greater than our father Abraham? And here's the answer to it, isn't it? Yes, because he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's greater than Abraham. And the point here in in Hebrews chapter 7 is that the Levitical priests all were the descendants of Abraham. And that they gave... Uh, deference to Melchizedek as king by, through Abraham, giving tithes to Melchizedek. And so Melchizedek is the king with, is the priest with kingly rights. And as we look through the Old Testament scriptures, that's very significant because this is the only instance in all of the Old Testament scriptures where the two offices of king and priest are combined in one individual. There's an instance in the Old Testament where a king tried to do the work of a priest. Boys and girls, you'll remember this, when Uzziah went into the temple to offer incense. And what happened? He was struck with leprosy till the day that he died. And God was telling them, priest and king never go together. But here in Melchizedek, the two are together. And why is that? Because it's to show us that the priestly work of Melchizedek had the power or the authority of a king. 
And that's why his name is King of Righteousness as well as King of Peace. King of Righteousness because through his priestly work he would accomplish righteousness. Now, he does that as a type of Jesus Christ. And Christ would not be simply a priest as all the priests in the Levitical tribe were, but he would also be king with power in his priestly work, power in his sacrifice and the shedding of his blood. So first, Melchizedek was a king of eternal origin. Second, he was a, a, a priest with kingly rights. And then third, he was a priest by the oath of God. By the oath of God. All the priests of the Old Testament were priests, and the point is made here in Hebrews chapter 7, were priests by law. They were born into the priesthood. They were born into the family of Levi. They became priests by the commandment of the law. But God makes Jesus Christ a priest not from the family of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah by a specific prophecy and oath. God, who can swear by none other than himself, makes Jesus Christ a priest by oath and promise. And that's the prophecy of Psalm 110 that's quoted here in Hebrews 7 verse 21. The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Israel, in looking for the promised Messiah, were looking for one who would not only be a king, but also a priest, but not a priest like the priest of the tribe of Levi, but a priest like Melchizedek, of the order of Melchizedek. So he's not a priest by law, but a priest by oath. He was not a priest by descent from Aaron, but he was a priest who would come with an eternal beginning of days. And the result of that would be, and here's the fourth thing about Melchizedek as priest, that he has an eternal priesthood. Now, this is not true of Melchizedek as a man, but again, this goes back to verse 3, where he has no beginning and no end of days. And so, verse 23, the contrast to the Aaron, the priests of the tribe of Aaron. They truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. So there was this lineage of priests, many different priests, and they kept dying. And so someone else had to replace them. There was no eternal priesthood. It was a temporary priesthood. But Christ comes after the order of Melchizedek now as an eternal priest. And the point is that he's still priest today. He abides continually as our priest. Then there's one more thing that's added about the superiority of Jesus Christ as priest, and that's in uh, verses 26 and following, and it's this, that he's a priest who is without sin. Now, Hebrews makes a point of that elsewhere, but it's mentioned here. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, so superior to the Levitical priests who die. He continues eternally as a priest, but there's something else that's important, and it's this, that he was a priest without sin. And so verse 27, or verse 26, he was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, right? 
Christ, when he came into the world and made a sacrifice, didn't have to make a sacrifice for himself. He conceived and born without sin, the sinless one. And so as he brings sacrifice, he doesn't bring something else as a sacrifice, but he brings himself as the sacrifice, as the sinless one, as the fulfillment of all those Old Testament bulls and rams and lambs and goats that could never pay for sin. He was the spotless one, the lamb without blemish, slain before the foundation of the world. So his sacrifice, not just his priesthood, but his sacrifice is also superior. And you see that not only here in Hebrews chapter 9, but as I said, that's emphasized elsewhere. So in Hebrews chapter 7, but it's emphasized also elsewhere. Hebrews chapter 9 Verse 26, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now, once in the end of the world, hath he appointed, hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And you notice the the point there, the sufficiency of his sacrifice. Once he died for sin. And now believers look to him. That's the same point that's made in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 and 12, in contrast to the priests. Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God, finished his work, sat down, accomplished our salvation. And now you have to think of the Old Testament people looking at the priests, watching them go into the tabernacle and later the temple, watching them kill the sacrifices day after day after day. And what was it telling them? These men cannot make atonement for your sin. But there comes one who will and is the fulfillment. And that is Jesus Christ. And so in verse 25, we have the climax of Hebrews chapter 7. Wherefore, And it means on account of the fact that Christ is the superior priest. He is able to save to the uttermost them that come to God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. He's a priest that abides continually. He lives in the presence of God as our priest yet today. And on account of that, He's able to save to the uttermost. What does that mean? It means he can overcome every obstacle that there is to our salvation. Because he's accomplished, he's secured our salvation in his work. And that's a beautiful thought for us to to think of when we go through this life and, and its troubles and its trials and its temptations and the guilt and the struggles of sin. Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost. And that's what he's doing. That's what he's doing today as our priest as he sits at God's right hand and makes intercession for us. His sacrifice is complete. His priestly work 
as intercessor continues, and it's to make sure, to ensure that we will be saved completely. He that's begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And so the exhortation in the book of Hebrews is, come to Him, come to God by Him, come directly to Him, come boldly before the throne of grace. We have a Savior touched with the feeling of our infirmities. There are no obstacles. Come. Now, this idea of the finished work of Jesus Christ is something that Jesus Christ himself set forth during his earthly ministry. In John chapter 17, verse 1, at the beginning of what we call his high priestly prayer, he says in the beginning of that prayer, Father, I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. And he says that in anticipation of what he will accomplish that night on Calvary. I've finished the work that thou gavest me to do. In John chapter 18, verse 30, just a couple of chapters later, in the same gospel account, Christ proclaims from the cross, it is finished. And of course, that's a great declaration that he has accomplished our salvation in the suffering of the cross. He paid the price completely for our sins. His sacrifice was a price paid of infinite value for our sin. And so in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and verse 14, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared. And that's described for us in Titus 2, verse 14, this way, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people. He has done this. He has accomplished this. Romans chapter 6, verse 10 says that he died once unto sin and he dies no more and he lives. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the seal of God to us that he's accomplished, finished our salvation. And that's the contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices and the Old Testament priests. They died and someone else had to replace them because they didn't accomplish the work of priests. They sacrificed morning and evening and they did this repeatedly and they did this in all their different ceremonies and blood was shed repeatedly but there was never payment for sin. All of this was done in anticipation of Jesus Christ who would come as the fulfillment of all those things. And God punctuated, He finished, He put the period, the full stop on those sacrifices when, as Jesus cried out, it is finished, the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. And so today, no more altar, no more sacrifice, no more priests, because Christ has fulfilled those things. And that's the good news of the gospel to believers. That's the good news that comes to you and me this morning. That we struggle with the guilt of our sin. He is able to save to the uttermost, completely, those that come to God by Him. And let us draw near with sincere hearts. Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. Those are 
quotes from Hebrews. That's the point of Hebrews. Come to God through him. Believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And don't look to something else or someone else. And now in contrast to that, we have this morning the Roman Catholic Mass. The Roman Catholic Mass, which is summarized very accurately by the Heidelberg Catechism this way, as teaching that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests, even though the Scriptures teach very clearly that Christ has accomplished salvation, Rome says sins have not yet been paid. And the Mass is used as a repeated sacrifice. Now, what is the Mass? Well, the word Mass refers to a separate ceremony than the partaking of the Eucharist. So the Roman Catholic Church has really divided this into two things. Prior to the partaking is the Mass. And in the Mass, the priest supposedly is able to change the elements of bread and wine into the real body and the real blood of Jesus Christ by consecration. And in that consecration, the priest prays for the Holy Spirit to come down and change the bread and the wine in the words that he will utter, which are the words of Jesus Christ that are uttered in Latin, this is my body. Hoc est corpus meum. And now, boys and girls, you've heard the word hocus pocus. Well, hocus pocus is magic, isn't it? And when the priest says those words in the Latin, something magical is supposed to happen. That the bread is no longer bread and the wine is no longer wine. Now it's the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's the Mass. At the end of that ceremony, there is a dismissal. And not everybody always partakes of the bread. And no one actually is given the right to partake of the wine of the Eucharist. And so the word Mass actually comes from that word, you are dismissed. You are dismissed. And the people, and really Rome has shifted the focus of the sacrament from Christ and his finished work and partaking in that work to this magical ceremony in which the bread and the wine are supposed to change. That's what the Mass is. And those changed elements, once lifted up by the priest and consecrated and supposedly changed transubstantiation, the substance is transformed, are then worshipped by the people. And sometimes those elements are taken and put in a separate room behind a glass case and a chalice, and you can go in there and bow down to the body of Jesus Christ and worship those elements. Do we make this stuff up? No, we don't make it up. This is the Roman Catholic Mass. This is uh, from a Roman Catholic priest who's written a book called The Faith of Millions, The Credentials of the Catholic Religion. He writes this, and I quote, When the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, this is my body, this is the Mass, 
And in the Mass, he reaches up into heaven and brings Christ down from his throne and places him on an altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power exercised by the priest greater than that of saints and angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is a power greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Blessed Virgin Mary was the agency by which Christ became incarnate, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders him present at our altar as the eternal victim. And then you ask, why? The reason? So that a sacrifice can be made again. So that the body of Christ, which is now not just represented in the bread, but the bread has become the body, is broken. And that's a sacrifice. And the blood is poured out. And that's a sacrifice. And it's teaching the sacrifice of Jesus Christ needs to be repeated daily. I have more quotes. Pope Benedict says this, The Mass is the sum and the substance of our Christian faith. The the Catholic Catechism says, The Mass is the source and summit of our Christian life. Trent damns those, condemns them, who say that Christ is not actually present in the bread and the wine. Well, over against Hebrews chapter 7, and what we've just looked at concerning the, the sufficiency and the value of the death of Jesus Christ, what's the problem with Rome? These things, very quickly. First, they reestablish what God has done away with in the priests and the sacrifices. And they say Christ has not fulfilled those things. Second, they deny the value of the death and the blood of Jesus Christ. They don't say, as Hebrews does, that he died once for all to pay for all sin, but they say he must continue to die for sin, that God is not satisfied with what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so they dishonor what Christ has done on the cross, and they deny the power of the atonement. Third, and this is damaging to God's people, they say it's impossible to know that your sins are forgiven and paid. Christ has to keep on dying. You keep on sinning, and you might die in your sins. So they've invented this thing called purgatory, and Rome is a whole religion of fear, not a religion of good news, not a religion of assurance of forgiveness through the finished work of Jesus Christ, but a religion of fear that's used to coerce the populations, the millions, into enriching the coffers of Rome. And they teach the people this, you cannot come to Christ. You have to come through a priest. You have to come through Mary. You have to come through some of the saints. And of course, that's completely against what Hebrews says, which says, come, let us draw near. Come boldly. Come to Christ. Come to God through Him. But then there's one other thing, and that's what's pointed to at the end of Lord's Day, uh, uh, question and answer 80, and it's this, that the Mass is an accursed idolatry. 
You ask, how is it idolatry? Well, you know what idolatry is. Idolatry is to take some earthly thing and worship that in the place of God. And that's what happens. The bread, in fact, is not changed. It's still bread. And that earthly thing is worshipped as God. And the Scriptures tell us, no other gods before me, no graven images. But these graven images are a part of the whole Roman Catholic system of worship. And it begins with their worship of the bread. So, just like the pagan religions, some object is worshipped other than God. And God is offended because he is God alone. Well, over against all that, we, in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, celebrate the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we're going to come back to this next week. But the words of institution are this. This do in remembrance of me. Remember. Christ does not say, this do in repetition of what I will do, but this do in remembrance. We're remembering something that's taken place already. And that remembrance is, I call it, a celebration. Similar to the way that word is used in the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember that God made in six days and rested on the seventh day. Remember that thou wast a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God brought thee out thence through a bitey hand and by a strong arm. And it's not saying to Israel, as you remember that, repeat it. No, it's saying God has done this in the past. Celebrate deliverance. Celebrate that God has brought you out from the land of Egypt. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper, to celebrate the finished work of Jesus Christ. The purpose of the Lord's Supper, then, is not fear. The purpose of the Lord's Supper is not, you're not forgiven, so the sacrifice has to be made again. But the purpose of the Lord's Supper is is to bring home to the believing heart the wonderful truth that Christ has paid the full price for your sins and mine. And so we can come with confidence, we can come boldly unto him. And so again, verse 25, He is able to save to the uttermost them that come to God by him. That's our confidence. Amen. Father, we thank Thee for the, the power of the death of Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for what He has accomplished. We thank Thee, Lord, for the celebration of that in the sacrament. And we are grateful, Lord, that our Savior has gone before us into Thy presence and that He ever lives there to intercede in our behalf to ensure ensure that we will be saved to the uttermost. Hear our prayers, we pray. Sanctify our minds to receive the sacrament next week with such a faith. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.